the Premier On podcast is brought to you today by our friends at Java Remix. Java Remix is the perfect blend of 100% organic Arabica coffee infused with nano-emulsified CBD. Cannabidiol, or CBD, is fast gaining a reputation as a remedy to treat everything from anxiety to depression, inflammation to acne. And now it's available in your morning cup of Java. Go to javaremix.com right now and browse through their available products. Java Remix offers traditional ground coffee as well as single-serve K-cups in both regular and decaf. And if you aren't a coffee person, Java Remix also offers CBD-infused teas, bath bombs, and body scrubs. And for our Prove Me Wrong listeners, go online right now, that's javaremix.com, and enter the promo code PROVEMEWRONG for a 20% discount off your entire shopping experience. And Java Remix also offers free shipping on all orders over $40. Once again, that's javaremix.com, promo code prove me wrong. Welcome back everyone to another edition of the Prove Me Wrong podcast. Tonight we're going to dive into a topic that to be honest, I didn't even know existed before maybe 6 months ago. We're going to talk tonight about the life and specifically the death of the king of rock and roll, Elvis Presley. Was his death the result of an accidental overdose in his bathroom, which honestly is the story that I had always known, or was it something more nefarious than that? Was Elvis actually murdered? My guest tonight is author and researcher Stephen Ubaney, and he is going to present the case to support the position that Elvis did not die by accident, but that in fact he was murdered and his murderer was never brought to justice. Stephen merged his love of history and his quest for the truth, and he became the architect of the Who Murdered book series. Since the inception of the series, numerous volumes have been published, and as he works towards a completion of a five-volume set, which is scheduled for completion somewhere in 2022. His research has made him a frequent guest on television, radio, and podcast programs worldwide due to his in-depth knowledge of the material. His books currently include Who Murdered Elvis?, who Murdered FDR, and recently published Who Murdered Diana. He also has two more projects in process that will be released soon. You can find more on Steve's books on whomurderedbooks.com and amazon.com. Welcome, Steve, to the show. Hey, Pete, thanks for having me. So, if you would, start me off with the history as to when and why you started this research and why you decided to write these books. You know, I get asked that a lot, and I really don't have a great answer. I think you have to be inspired. Mm-hmm. I think that you have to gravitate to what you love. So I write about things that interest me. And I always, you know, in, in you go through middle school and high school and college and things, and you have to write down, in history class, you have to write down the answer that they want. And, of course, right. a lot of the answers I just didn't believe. You know, I, I, in the FDR case, I found it hard to believe that, FDR, Mussolini, and uh, and uh, Hitler all died within 18 days of each other. Wow. I thought it was a little bit suspicious. Um, I thought it was suspicious that FDR died, quote unquote, of natural causes at the same time Allied troops were storming his bunker. Um, so anyway, um, here we have, you know, here we have a lot of history that uh, I just never agreed with. So I decided mm-hmm. to dig in to the things that I had always earmarked that I didn't believe. 
Um, Who Murdered Diana actually is being published here in about two months. Oh, okay. So it's, not, it's not quite out yet. I'm having some difficulty with the British government, as you could well imagine. Oh, sure. <laughs> having problems getting some interviews with some people. So as far as Elvis Presley is concerned, um, I've been a Presley fan. So my mother started me being an Elvis fan. I mean, she's been in love with this guy since she was 11. I think she saw him on the Dorsey Brothers show, which is his first television show. So. Mm-hmm. By the time I was 10 or 12, I think I knew more about Elvis Presley than most people did, you know. And when he died, you know, I'm old enough to remember where I was and what we were doing. I never bought it. I always knew there was more to the story. I never believed it. I thought it was an Easter Bunny story. I like to call these things Easter Bunny stories. I never believed it. And I always knew that one day I would look into it. You know, that uh, that day came about uh, 10 years ago. And the more I started to dig, the more I started to realize that um, we've really been lied to. Mm-hmm. Elvis Presley got between the mob and the FBI, and he was in grave danger. And I think this was the cover story that they put out uh, because you know, we, we're not good with the truth, you know. And I don't think in 1977, especially, we're still struggling with the truth in 2020. In 1977, we wouldn't have been able to handle what really happened. And I think now that you know, when you look investigate something, everyone's looking for answers and all the answers are tightly held to the best. But when people stop looking decades and decades later, the truth starts to leak out. By that time, no one's looking anymore, right. except, except people like me. So I was ab- able to go back in, reinvestigate these deaths in this book series, piece together the snippets of information and really solve what happened with newly found information. So that was uh, that. That's where the inspiration for this book series came from. And did you always have a series in mind, or was it just initially uh, you had this interest in Elvis and you wanted to research that? Did you have that long view from the start? No, I did not. I just I started out with uh, the first Elvis book, and uh, I put that out, and I stumbled across the FDR book. And then I did the fifth anniversary edition of the Elvis Presley book, which has even more information in it. Okay. And it just, you know, it just blossomed from there. It was one thing after the next. And, uh, you know, I didn't, I didn't start with the series in mind. It was kind of funny how it happened. Well, you probably don't have any shortage of books. You could probably do a a 30 book series. (laughs) Uh, I mean, honestly, Marilyn Monroe, she died under mysterious circumstances. There are a lot of people that you could probably write and put into these books. Um, Yeah. As you know, I, I have a copy of the book and I have read it. And if you don't mind, I can, you know, kind of go through the first section of your book outlines the birth of Elvis as an entertainer, how he was discovered, kind of at the beginning of his uh, his popularity. I was very young when he passed. I was four years old when he passed. So I had nothing more than really a casual understanding of his work. Can you start us off with some of his early history, you know, kind of the, the beginning of your book? Talk about how he rose to fame and, and then some of the challenges that came along with it. Well, Elvis was born uh, in Tupelo, Mississippi, in a shotgun shack, basically very, very poor. And it was he had a, he had a stillborn brother, Jesse, and he was actually the second one born. And uh, he got his musical influence from going to the Baptist church. And they used to sing in church and he's picked up the, you know, we're dealing with a rhythm and blues gospel mixture, which is what he made into his own style. So Mm -hmm. that's the beginnings of him. When he was very small, his father was, it's kind of funny, his father ended up in jail for a time. 
uh, he ended up, and this this actually affected him a great deal. This is how he ended up being so close with his mother. His father went to jail for a time because he was raising a pig to slaughter, him and his two cousins. And his uh, he was selling it to, he was a farmer, worked for a farmer, and he was selling it to that farmer who was also his landlord. And they said he was going to give him $14 for it. Well, that was a king's ransom when you're poor and you have a little baby to feed. Mm-hmm. They ended up giving him $4 for it. So he was so mad, he took the check, a $4 check, and they forged it to make it a $14 check, and all three of them went to jail. So Elvis Presley ended up being very close with his mother because it was just his formative years. It was just the two of them. The father was out of the picture. So they finally got, when they were all united as a family, it was uh, it was quite a bond you know, between Elvis and his mother. You know, he had a very good relationship with his parents. So growing up was very difficult for Elvis. He was an only child. He didn't, the family actually ran out of work in Tupelo. They went to Memphis. And by that time, you know, you're dealing with the 1940s and there was public assistance and that's where he lived. He lived in public, public housing in Lauderdale courts in, in Memphis. And that's where he met the majority of the people who would go on to be uh, his Memphis mafia, his group of friends that he took with him. They came up through school. They were his, his boyhood friends and so forth. But Elvis had a tough time. It was a crew cut thing in uh, where he was going in high school. Everyone was wearing crew cuts. And here he comes with this flamboyant dress and the James Dean haircut. And he, it was it was tough on him. He definitely was an outcast. So he was always on that musical path. It wasn't something that kind of hit him in a eureka moment. It was something that he he lived that as early on as as grade school. Yeah, he he was crafting his uh, his uh, his new musical style for years. He was he was really good friends with BB King. He was good friends with you know a lot of the black performers who at that time were not getting on record. So he would go to um, he was too young to get into bars. What he used to do is he used to hang outside. And he used to listen to him and watch him play through the window. And every now and then he'd find a, a sympathetic bar owner who would let him come in and watch. And he was learning the whole time. So his his mixture was, uh, his uh, music was a mixture of country, gospel, and rhythm, rhythm and blues. And he mixed all of that together and made his own style, which is which is really kind of interesting. Um but what a what an impact this guy had on society. He came along. The reason why Elvis Presley so baked in the cake of Americana, he rose to fame. It was the first time kids had their own music. Portable record players came out. Television came out with Elvis Presley in 1955, 1966, mm-hmm. when Elvis made his rocket ride to fame. He was baked in the cake with all of it. He wrote it right to fame because before that, kids were listening to whatever their parents were listening to. They were listening to Glenn Miller and whatnot so for the first time kids had their own identifiable music and you know that opened the door actually to um uh there were no black artists getting on record so there would have been no Motown. there would have been no michael jackson there would have been nothing like that so elvis really pierced the veil someone had to be first and it was him and it is really impressive and i did remember i did think that early on most bands or artists they don't i mean they they change over the course of their career you know sometimes the natural evolution to the music but mm-hmm. i didn't know many people who to me went to such extremes you know because like you said he he had gospel records 
He had rock and roll, quote unquote, rock and roll records. He had things that would could have been considered rhythm and blues records. You don't see most bands doing that. They got tracked into a certain style of music, and that's where they stayed. They may have evolved slightly over time, but he was so varied and was accepted, really, in all of those genres. And that, and that's that to me is also very unique. It didn't didn't seem to happen much. I can't recall who said it, but it was seven different styles that he yeah. was singing in from gospel to rhythm and blues to country to, you know, I mean, and I can't remember where the quote came from when I stumbled across it, but it was seven different, different genres and styles that he was singing in. So it was a really interesting thing, but you know, when you grow up in the 1950s and you've, you have churches burning your records and, you know, smashing your records and this and that, because they think they can't accept it. It's quote unquote, the devil's music. This is one of the reasons why Colonel Parker went to such great lengths to keep Elvis crystal clean. <laughs> they had to, to keep it going. So what age was he when he broke through? How old was he when they when he really started to gain some traction and started to experience some fame? Well, in the 1954 and 1955, he was on the Louisiana Hayride, which was, re- it was regional. I mean, he was a regional star. He was handled by, Sun Phillip, uh, by uh, Sam Phillips under Sun Records in Memphis. But um, he wasn't getting the exposure that he needed. So his manager um, at the time was having some money problems. So Colonel Parker comes along and sees this act and knows he's the next big thing. Now, Colonel Parker, he was already a veteran of the music world. Uh, He was managing Minnie Pearl, Hank Snow, Gene Austin, Roy Acuff, um, June Carter Cash, which was Johnny Cash's wife. Right. And the big one was Eddie Arnold. He was he exclusively handled Eddie Arnold. So he he gets a hold of uh, of Elvis and uh, Elvis's mother hated Colonel Parker, hated him on sight. So it was quite a con job to get her on board with it. So he bought the contract from Sam Phillips at Sun Records and it took him national. So the rocket ride Elvis had, I think he was 19 or 20. Uh, 1956. So he had no he had no choice then in being connected with Colonel Parker. Colonel Parker bought his contract and that was it. He was his manager. Pretty much, yeah. Hank, um, I'm sorry, Eddie Arnold had warned Elvis and Vernon not to not to do have anything to do with Colonel Parker. He, he they were we were both warned, but you know you're dealing with a time when you know he was making a little bit of money, but he wasn't anywhere near wealthy at that time. So mm-hmm. you know. When you put your hand in your pocket and you feel nothing but your leg, it's kind of hard. <laughs> it's kind of hard to ignore somebody who's offering you millions of dollars and all kinds of future. So, and that's what happened. And that's uh, the two of them. The Parker, the Parker Presley one-two punch lasted for a while, quite longer than it should have, actually. So his fame takes off and he rockets, and uh, it, it becomes a problem, right? I mean, it definitely becomes a problem where, especially with the advent of television and really the emergence of television. And the way Elvis moved, the sexuality that he exuded, the perception or, or the, the real impact that that had on the youth of America. Uh, you even posed, if I, if I read it correctly in the book, that the war effort and being drafted was almost a byproduct of his popularity. Absolutely. And, you know, everyone who takes, he was in the middle of, of uh, filming a movie uh-huh. and all of a sudden... You know, he gets drafted in the army and uh, he was causing such a stir, causing such a problem for the federal authorities 
they had to draft them to get them out of, to just get them out of their hair. Wow. In the hopes that this thing would calm down. They did the exact same thing, carbon copy to Cassius Clay. You know, they had to draft him to get him out of the way because of the Black Panther movement and everything. And the Black uh, Millen, so he was attached to through through um, Malcolm X. So that happened <laughs> before El before anybody did anything. Elvis Presley did everything. So it started with Elvis. They drafted him to get him out of the way, hoping everything would calm down. They did the same thing with Muhammad Ali later on. So, so they were just trying to take a couple of years out of his career, um, yeah. allow the furor of Elvis to die down. They weren't necessarily trying to put him in a position where he might be injured. It was more just to take him out of the public eye. Yeah, let everything settle down. Maybe let him grow up a little bit. Let him calm down a little bit. Let everything just settle. Mm -hmm. and, uh, they had enough recordings in the can, so to speak, uh, that they could continue to uh, release records when he was gone. So... It was almost like he was never gone because they started releasing records, you know, while he was while he was over there in Germany. So they uh, they prepared well for it. And, and you said he was in the middle of a movie at that time. Is that, mm -hmm. He did a lot of movies, right? I mean, how many movies did he end up? I think it was 31. 31 movies. I believe it was 31. And there was a time when they were doing a minute uh, a movie start to finish in 30 days. Wow. And that's when it got to the point where Colonel was working this guy into oblivion. He started getting runny, bloody noses that wouldn't stop. And the doctor came in and they said, look, this guy's resistance is shot. You've got to give this guy a couple days off. I mean, it was it became golden handcuffs. And you know, he was doing these horrible movies. Well, they were not all horrible, but eventually they ended up that way. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he ended up that then this is where this this. Um, I ended up being friends with Susanna Lee, who was his co-star in Paradise Hawaiian Style. I ended up being friends with a lot of his friends, actually. And she said that the first four scenes that she shot weren't even with Elvis. He had people who were stand-ins for him, who were actually surgically altered to look like him. So Elvis was laying down the, the, the music tracks in the studio, and he, she was doing these shots with other people who looked similar to Elvis, uh, so they could uh, keep that 30-day schedule, and he could be in two places at one time. Oh, Actually, wow. there's a, there's a very famous photograph of um, Susanna Lee with her arms around Elvis for Paradise, Paradise Hawaiian style. And if you look real close, that's not Elvis. Elvis's face is very triangular. This guy's face is very U-shaped. That's one of the looks lookalikes. And this is why you're having these Elvis is Alive people out there. Because they're seeing these people. They're seeing yeah. the lookalikes. So they're, you know, they have... Yeah, not to jump too far ahead, but yeah, they, that's pretty much exactly where my brain went when you when you say yeah. things like that is, what better way to, to disappear than, to, you know, you have people who are surgically altered, they look just like you. Yeah. One of them passes away and you pass away. And, and now you have a get out of jail free card. Right. Um, but um, but I don't want to get, I don't want to get that far ahead just yet. So... How did he become involved in the mob? I mean, was it just through Colonel Parker that he became involved in the mob? Did he uh, even understand how in deep he was with the mob? He understood exactly how deep he was. Okay. And this all started from Colonel Parker. Colonel Parker, he was, his name wasn't Parker and he wasn't a colonel. Okay. He was a stowaway from the Netherlands. Uh, he was born in the Netherlands and his real name was Adrius Van Koo. And he was born in the Netherlands of a big family. 
and um, he started, uh, he was fascinated with the circus when he was a teenager. So he ran away and joined the circus. And this is where he learned how to be a pitch man. He, he started out tending animals, tending for animals and this and that. And he worked his way up through the circus ranks. So he ended up being um, a showman and a circus promoter, which is how he learned the tricks of the trade that would carry him into the musical to handling large music acts in America. So this is what he was doing, uh, gaining money to come to America, working on the shipping docks part-time, and of course, working in the circus when they're around. So on May 17th, 1929, there was a murder over there. A woman named uh, Anna Van Vanden Eden was murdered. And that is when Colonel uh, Adrias Van Coo disappeared in the Netherlands. And this person appeared in America, came in, went into the army, uh, went AWOL and took the name of his commanding officer, Colonel Tom Parker. So this is how this person came about. And, you know, we didn't have the records or the technology or anything like we do today. So this person could just wander the streets of America. Uh, he got a dishonorable discharge. He went AWOL and he was, they put him in solitary confinement. And he actually emerged with uh, a mental illness. They said mm. he, was, uh, he was a psychopath. So here we have this person wandering the streets of America, already a murderer, taking on huge talents in Las Vegas. And uh, this is how he became so baked in the cake in Vegas. And I had to tell you that story to tell you this story. This is where the mob comes from. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, you don't play Vegas in, in that era 1950s 1960s 1970s unless you're hand in hand with a mom all right because they ran everything in vegas if you see them saw the movie casino although parts of it were fictitious you kind of get the idea of the stranglehold they had right on vegas so colonel parker was very steeped in the mob and the same people who tried to run elvis were also running frank sinatra's career and the first person that um, uh, Colonel Parker befriended with was a, a person from the Detroit syndicate who bought the bingo club in 1947, which later became the Sahara. And he also owned the Aladdin and the Mint. His name was Milton Prell. And he was a huge player in Las Vegas. You don't play Vegas unless you're friends with Milton Prell. The second big boy out there was a guy named Mo Dallas. There was no one bigger in the 50s and 60s. He was uh, from the Cleveland Syndicate, and much like Milton Prell, they were out there laundering money. His, the, the, the Cleveland Syndicate came from, uh, um, they used to run liquor, and they had to launder the money into something. So they went on being, you know, buying the stardust and the desert end. But his real job, uh, Modell's real job out there was to be a real close friend to uh, Meyer Lansky and Jimmy Hoffa. So those are the people who already ran Frank Sinatra's career. Right. Tried very hard to get into Elvis, and they came real close. Um, Colonel Parker and uh, Mo Dallas actually became neighbors in Palm Springs later on down the road. So here we have, let me fast forward to Elvis's wedding, okay? Uh, Frank Sinatra's plane, and the whole thing was done in Milton Prowse Hotel, the Aladdin. The guy couldn't even plan his own wedding. Wow. He was up to his chin in the mob and he couldn't get out. So it started out a 75-25 split. Colonel Parker took 
25%, Elvis got 75%. And then it went to a 50-50 split. And towards the end, it was still a 50-50 split on the books, but Colonel Parker was doing side jobs, side promotions that Elvis was not getting a part of. So towards the end, it was more like an 80-20 split. What was the event that caused it to become a 50-50? Why did Elvis agree to that? He didn't have much of a choice to agree to it. Uh, with He was starting to rebel against the colonel. Uh-huh. And the colonel held an impromptu meeting and basically said, uh, he threw some people out of his uh, out of his inner circle because he didn't like the way it was going. One of those people was uh, Larry Geller, was Elvis's hairdresser, and he was getting Elvis involved in the de-spiritual things and reading books and this and that, and Colonel Parker didn't like it because Larry Geller was smart enough to tell Elvis to get away from Colonel Parker. So he got thrown out. A couple other people got thrown out of Elvis's inner circle. And the colonel said, okay, we've got this, 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 and this coming up, and you're going to do this. Or if you don't do this, you're not going to do anything else. So he, he wasn't going to, he was reading a movie script. And he was, and I know the guy who was in the room, and I'm not going to mention his name because he told me not to. But okay. um, he's reading a movie script, it's a movie, movie script, and Elvis flips out throws the script all over the room and says it's the same script last one last movie i was a race car driver this one i'm a motorcycle rider the next one i was driving speedboats it's the exact same script and he said i'm not doing it anymore that's it so the next day he doesn't go down to report to the to film colonel parker came up the studio came up rca came up all the representatives and they basically said right there you're going to do this or you're not going to do anything else and the great debate in the room was after they left, were they threatening his career or uh, his life? Right, exactly. So Colonel Parker said right then, now it's at 50-50. I'm doing all this extra work from you. It's going to be a 50-50 split, and I'm going to backdate it from the beginning of the year. Well, hell, it was August then. So he got a 50-50 split, and Elvis was powerless. What could he do? The guy had the full force of the mob behind him. Quite honestly, the, the most fascinating part of the book, almost in my mind, was... Tom Parker was the revelations about him, his past, you know, the kind of person he was, because I, I had no idea about him, quite honestly. I didn't know anything about him. So that that whole story that you that you just recounted about his past and the potential murder and kind of coming in, changing his name and just being someone else and having the ability to operate in the United States free from repercussion, mm -hmm. uh, that just amazing to me. Was there ever a point where I mean, was he actually a suspect in the murder? And, you know, why wasn't there ever any effort to extradite him back or hold him accountable? Oh, boy. How long is this? <laughs> <laughs> we got an hour, an hour, a little over an hour. Yeah. Well, they couldn't extradite him back because, well, let me think here. How do I do this and not give away the book? We'll just say that people were much more naive in 1977 and you were not finding his records because his friendship with Milton Prell made those records disappear. Okay. So there was no backtracking to this. So So he essentially said, I'm Tom Parker, and nobody could prove he wasn't. There was no paper trail that proved he wasn't. And that was the reason why he did the 1973 Aloha from Hawaii 
uh, concert, which was satellite all over the world because he was getting multi, multi-million dollar uh, invitations to perform at the pyramids at, at Giza in Egypt and all over the world. And Elvis really wanted to do it. And Colonel Parker never told him why he couldn't do it, but that's why he couldn't get a passport. Hmm couldn't get out of this country and he's not going to go anywhere without Elvis. So they did this to satisfy the fans around the world. They did this Aloha from Hawaii. Uh, so you have the mob all the way around Elvis starting to squeeze him. Okay. Mm-hmm. At the same time, Elvis is starting to get threatened. Uh, he's started in 1969. Elvis was starting into fear for, from his life. There was one, I don't know how credible this is, there was one uh, account that Elvis was kidnapped for a couple of days and was held for ransom. I've never been able to prove that. That came from one person, and I won't. I won't give. Uh, I won't give her name. Right. But in 1969, things started getting a little bit hairy. So Elvis goes to. He starts to realize he's already a black belt. He's already carrying guns on him all over the place. He stood at Sunny Sunny West wedding his best man with five guns on him you know he was he was really hunkered down for some stuff there was i think the bars on graceland are gone now but bars appeared on graceland for a reason and you know i mean they were all in fear of their life if you look at graceland and you look at michael corleone's compound in godfather 2 right find me a difference (laughs) you can't you yeah. have gates, you have walls, you have guards, you have closed circuit cameras, you have everything. And this is exactly what Graceland became a compound. Yeah, that was really when I became kind of aware. That was the Elvis that I was aware of, was mm-hmm. the gun-toting, cape-wearing, very, I don't know, not necessarily militant, but much more um, uh, armed Elvis. And it just seemed like, you know, without knowing the backstory of it, it just seemed... You know, does he go on a little kooky? I mean, what what is with this recent fascination with being armed and and physical protection? That was the first one I got. I never got the young. You know, I was I was not born right. I was too young, so right. all I ever saw was the older uh, Elvis at that point, where he was you know overweight or much heavier than he had been previously, and again carrying guns everywhere, doing karate moves everywhere on stage or what have you, and and kind of seemed almost like a parody of himself. But you're saying that he has that level of pressure on him at all times and that fear of his life that would drive you to do some irrational things, but some take steps to take care of yourself. I can get it. Yeah, I think that we all evolve right you know, the course of our lives. And I think that product came from a lot of evolution over the years of a lot of things that people didn't know about. And this, you know, his band of brothers around him were so incredible and so tight. Nothing got out from Elvis and nothing got into Elvis. And this is why we have this insatiable thirst for anything. It's Elvis because things are coming out now. We haven't known. It's been 43 years. A guy died two days ago, 43 years ago, and things are still coming out. I mean, I couldn't find evidence like this uh, when I was. You know, when I was 12, when he died, I couldn't do it. It just wasn't out there. You know, it takes decades for all of for people to come forward. And once they come forward and you start to piece these snippets together, then you can start to realize, oh, this is why this happened. Mm-hmm. You know, so uh, it was, it was a lot of digging in that book, I'll tell you. Do you it feel was, that it, that is partially because of the people that were involved and, and maybe needing to have those people pass away or, you know, they're no, their influence is no longer there? That allows other people to loosen up and come forward, like you said. Sure, I think so. Yeah, 
So here we have Elvis for 1970-ish. He starts to realize he's starting to get threatened to the point where he's got a 45 strapped on his ankle when he's on stage, which wow. is which was hit by his bell bottoms. Right. You know, I mean, it's, it's getting to the point where he, he needs to legally carry a gun in every state. So he goes to see Richard, Richard Nixon, December 21st, 1970 to get federal credentials of any kind to be able to carry these guns wherever he flies in every state so he can be protected. So things got so crazy. And that was his first, way to get traction against the mob influence and how they were trying to take over his career. He was starting to become, uh, you know, he was a federal narcotics agent. He started to work with, uh, with the FBI and bringing people down and, and so forth like that. So he was doing that so he could carry guns in all the states and start to get a little bit of traction against mm -hmm. the mob influences around them. So from the outside looking in, these probably look like crazy things, but we didn't know the other side of the right. story. So he, per the book, he had a lot of information on individuals, and he was about to be called to testify prior to his death. Is that that's correct? Right. Part of what happened. Uh, well, let me let me get to the progression of that. Sure. Okay. Aloha from Hawaii comes and goes, smashing success. I'll give you an example of what happened here with this guy. Um, so Aloha from Hawaii happens. He's on tour. He's in Vegas for two months a year. That's his contract. And what Richard Nixon asked him to do through those two months is take FBI agents and put them in his band and pose them as band members so they can investigate the mob. Okay. So it got so thick around him. February 18th, 1973, right after Aloha from Hawaii, Elvis is on stage and four four guys rush the stage and elvis doesn't see him at first he's off to the side you know giving kisses and doing whatever he's doing mm -hmm. and four guys come up and try and take elvis out three of them get taken out by elvis's bodyguards who are behind the curtain from the stage the fourth guy gets to elvis elvis who's a black belt foot sweeps him the guy falls back into the crowd and he tell he on the mic he says, "I'll kill the next son of a bitch that comes on this stage." Well, they got so scared. The backup singers, the Sweet Inspirations, got so scared they wouldn't come back out. They were done for the day. That's it. They were gone. Right. Because what they knew was what nobody else in the crowd knew. Elvis has got a gun strapped to his to his leg on stage. This could have gotten really scary. So. You have all of this going on, him with federal narcotics agents, him being him being threatened, him housing um, FBI agents as band members, and you have his manager in the mob. This is not going to end very well. Okay, so I you know I'd love to take credit for all this information, but I can't. Uh, there was an Elvis. Uh, there were thirty years of information before I got into it. Mm -hmm. I just finished it, and that information about uh, the band members being posed or FBI agents being posed as band members came to uh, everyone from Maria Columbus in 1990. She was going through Graceland. She's an Elvis investigator. Yeah. And she was going through Graceland and she found a document in Elvis's trophy room from the federal government thanking Elvis for his cooperation and some operation. Well, she got a hold of the federal government and wanted to know what this was about. 
the federal government was the one who told her that Elvis was posing FBI agents as band members in his band. So this came right from the government. And so that was the first time that they had ever mentioned that? It was, they just happened to find somebody on that day that Dan picked up the phone and didn't realize they weren't supposed to talk about it? To my knowledge, yeah. <laughs> that was just the first time Elvis the has been working with us. Yeah, is it the first time? I mean, we don't ever know what they're doing, but right. uh, this one was a little interesting. So all of this is leading up to this tragic ending of, uh, of Elvis Presley's murder. This is, you can't have Colonel Parker, you can't have Colonel Parker and the mob with all of this mob pull trying to control everything from right. the movies. And, and he was just, he was probably one of the most degenerate gamblers that ever lived. Uh, when Elvis died, Colonel Parker was in debt to the mob, $32 million at the gambling tables. Now, Elvis is on stage, knocking him dead, doing two to three shows a night, seven days a week, which no one does. It was entertainment servitude is what, what it was. And he's well paid. He's making $125,000 a week. Elvis was the first actor in Hollywood to ever make a million dollars picture. So he was well paid. But he was also well abused. It was entertainment servitude. You know, this was a velvet jail. So Elvis hated playing Vegas after a while. Colonel Parker loved it because he was doing his favorite thing. He was gambling on Elvis's dime. So this is not going to end well. You can't have Colonel Parker owing that, you know, at a time when average families are making $6,000 a year. Right. Parker's gambling away a million dollars a night on Elvis's dime. So you have the mob elements. You have the uh, the federal elements. You have threats coming into Elvis. And uh, this is not going to end well. Actually, January 27th, 1972, the Washington Post came out with an article that said that Elvis Presley got federal narcotics credentials from, from Richard Nixon. They posted the, uh, they posted the thing in the newspaper, in the Washington Post. It's in my book. Mm -hmm. That was the first time that anybody had a little hint of what was going on. Later on, when Maria Columbus came out with that response to that letter, we realized the depth of uh, of where we were. So Elvis dies mysteriously shortly before he's supposed to turn state's evidence against the mob in their Las Vegas investigation. But there's something else going on that is putting Elvis in, on the opposite side of the mob. He had a plane he was selling, the Hound Dog 2, mm -hmm. and he owed almost $900,000 on this thing. It was dry docked. Elvis had bought a bigger plane uh, because that's what everybody was doing. You know, Led Zeppelin and Elvis Presley were two of the biggest acts in the world. At one time, they were both handled by the same people. And he wanted a, uh, you know, he wanted a plane to equal or rival what they had. So the older, the older plane, the smaller plane had to go. So his father puts this thing up for sale who tries to buy this plane is a, a mob figure named uh, Frederick Peter Pro, who has been doing, <laughs> the FBI has been watching this guy for a decade. He's doing an international smuggling ring. He calls Vernon and wants to buy the plane, but he says the plane is not up to current standards. So he says, look, I got a deal for you. You'll be able to make more money. You can bring it up to standards and I'll pay you monthly. He said, how do I do that? He said, you borrow money, you bring it up to the standards. I'll take the plane and I'll give you back payments. Well, Vernon, who was barely literate, borrowed extra money. The plane disappeared. No payments came. Hmm. So thereafter, Frederick Peter Pro 
under what's called codename Operation Fountain Pen. And so now Elvis has crossed the mob twice. One for the operation in Vegas, the other one for the disappearance of his plane. All of this is going on behind the scenes and no one knows about it. The public doesn't know about it. The last time we ever see Elvis Presley, he's got a jumpsuit on from the DEA, was a DEA, I believe. If you look at the jumpsuit that he's wearing, that he's got a DEA jumpsuit on, um, a uh, sweatsuit, because he was playing racquetball, allegedly. Right. So all of this is leading up to 1977, and it got to the point where the faces of Vegas had changed. New people were running the casinos. They were not going to let Colonel Parker, they're not going to wait on his $32 million anymore. Parker started to become threatened for his life, and he started to realize that Elvis was... Elvis had some, he had some medical issues uh, and he was starting to cancel some days. Got to the point where Elvis became more money dead than alive. So 1974 comes around, Elvis, Elvis's manager, Parker, starts to realize his image never tires. I can sell posters, I can sell poker chips, I can put his face all over everything. Because he's starting to cancel dates. You know, if Elvis dies... I'm still making money. It doesn't matter if I have a live Elvis. So he, he was actually, they started Boxcar Enterprises, which Elvis had a little chunk of, but like most of the deals that Colonel Parker put before Elvis, it was grossly unfair to Elvis. He was actually uh, Elvis Presley Enterprises before Elvis Presley Enterprises was Elvis Presley Enterprises. Okay. It was this Boxcar Enterprises was the first attempt to commercialize Elvis Presley's image his signature on everything so what colonel parker was doing was positioning himself for the time when elvis was no longer around to keep the cash cow going how was elvis not in control of his own image I mean, how does that work you know legally you know what i mean where i, I get that this is his manager but how well, is he not in charge of didn't he have to give his have to give his sign off in some way for yeah that kind of well, marketing? they did that because they gave him he did sign off. There was a lot of things that Colonel Parker did that were not fair to Elvis. 1970, for example, there's a couple of examples. 1973, Elvis is in financial trouble. Priscilla had reopened the divorce in another state. This time she came back for a gigantic sum of money, and she took half of his, uh, half of his publishing rights. Elvis has heard he's in a cash crunch. This is right after Aloha from Hawaii. 1973 was a terrible year for Elvis Presley. And his part, his uh, manager comes up and says, I've got an idea how you can get some money quick. Well, Colonel Parker's real client was RCA. Mm -hmm. What Elvis? There was no fiduciary responsibility to Elvis here at all. So he says, look, you sell the rights to all of your music to RCA. That will give you the money to get out of the hot water with Priscilla. And the world will turn. So we did it. RCA got a fortune, Colonel Parker got a fortune, Elvis got virtually nothing. So he sold, he was tricked into selling all of the royalties for all of his music, you know, Hound Dog and Blue wow. Spade yeah. and all of that for nothing. In 1976, Elvis Presley was the highest, um, was the highest, he paid the highest tax in the state of Tennessee. He was the biggest taxpayer in the state of Tennessee. He had no tax shelters. So you have... I've said it before, I'll say it again, it was entertainment servitude. Wow. So that was one of the things. Uh, after Elvis dies in 1980, 
there's a big wrestling match that comes about. Priscilla has now got Graceland. They're trying to get his image taken away from Colonel Parker. There's a big lawsuit. And Blanchard Tool was one of the, uh, T-U-A-L, was one of the attorneys who looked into the case. And his famous statement, which is going to escape me, basically said that many of the deals that Colonel Parker did with Elvis were not, he had no fiduciary responsibility to Elvis at all. It was almost like he was working against Elvis. And because you have Vernon, who's a, you know, these were honest guys. They were nice guys. They weren't stupid, but they weren't, they were, they were, they could be tricked by someone who was good at tricking people. And Colonel Parker was good at tricking people. So Elvis dies 1977, August 16th, 1977. There's a million dollars in the bank. That's it. Wow. Now, the Recording Industry Artists of America have Elvis selling six billion records with a B. This, that's all they can track because when he started his career, they weren't able to track all these records. And so he probably sold more than six billion records. That's just what they can track. Where the hell's all the money? I think, and I haven't been able to approve it. I haven't been able to, to, to prove this. I think there was a longstanding blackmail somewhere and i think the mob bled him dry and i have not been able to prove that but the money had to have gone somewhere i mean now you realize he was generous he's give away cadillacs and houses and this and that if he made one dollar off those six billion records he'd have six billion dollars right Where the hell's all the money some doesn't add up so all of that comes to the death and of course, theories abound, right? Yeah. So then the second part of your book does kind of go into the discovery of the body and the inconsistencies in the crime scene and the testimonies, right? So can you take us through that as well? But actually, hold on just a moment on that thought. I'm going to take this opportunity right here just to go ahead and say that we're going to have to do this in two parts. And this is going to be the end of part one of our discussion with Mr. Steve Ubaini regarding the murder, potentially, of Mr. Elvis Presley. Please be sure to tune in next week. We're going to have a whole nother hour of information. We're going to continue on with Steve and talk about uh, the suspects, the evidence, and um, lay out the case again for why Elvis Presley's death was not an accidental overdose, but in reality was a murder. You can contact us using our, our email account. It's wrongcast at gmail.com. Drop us a line. Tell us what you think. Tell us if you have alternate theories or if you know other information that maybe we don't know. Who knows? You can also drop us a line on Instagram or Facebook. We are Broomerang Podcast. That's the name of the show on either one of those platforms. If you were just looking for content on the show itself from the podcast, we are on Spotify, TuneIn Radio, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Anchor, really anywhere where you find podcasts, you can find the Prove Me Wrong podcast. Like and subscribe to the show, and you will be the first one notified when a brand new episode is released. We typically release a new episode every week. So like and subscribe, you'll be the first one notified, and you can hear conversations like this one tonight. We're also on YouTube, and here is the scroll at the bottom of the page. Once again, like and subscribe to the Prove Me Wrong YouTube account, and you will be the first notified when new content is released. Again, every week you'll get a brand new video on YouTube that you can watch. You can watch these conversations live on YouTube, and you'll be the most educated person on your block about the murder of Elvis Presley. 
So before we go, the Premier on podcast is brought to you tonight as well by Zendo Zone Citronella Burners from JT Eaton. They are shaped like fearless bug-repellent tiki gods. So go ahead and let Surf and Stan, Hawaiian Howie, and Luau Lily bring the islands to your backyard with Zendo Zone Citronella Burners. Zendo Zones uses natural 3% citronella candles and incense cones, perfect for patios, decks, backyards, campsites, poolside, and more. You can enjoy the outdoors again. You can find them now on Amazon.com or at select Ace Hardware stores, so go ahead and collect them all today. So once again, from my guest tonight, Mr. Steve Ubaney, this is the end of part one. Come back next week and tune in again, and we will continue this discussion through to its conclusion. Once again, for the Proven Your Own Podcast, my name is Pete Lieb, and I will talk to you again soon. <laughs>